0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. My name is
1: Michael Johnston, and today I have Dustin Kiskadon on my show, New Books in Sociology, which is a channel on New Books Network. Welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So so Dustin is a cultural sociologist whose work can be found on Instagram uh, at Dustin.Kiskadon, K-I-S-K-A-D-D-O-N. And after nearly a decade of teaching and a few years of professional tattooing, he's now an expert uh, in culture, the economy and technology and uses it to conduct applied research in the field. He's currently working at uh, J.P. Chase and Morgan, uh, where he's putting sociology to practice. So um, today, though, we are going to be discussing uh, Blood and Lightning, um, printed, um, printed and published through Stanford University Press. and. Uh, so to start off with, can we discuss maybe how you came about this research and how you thought you know tattooing would be uh, the perfect thing to research?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I came to this project like a lot of people do. I was in a PhD program hunting down dissertation topics, and I had several on my plate that seemed kind of interesting. I had become really fascinated by the sociology of professions and economic sociology and that stuff on its surface seems like the most boring thing in the world. But when you actually read into it and think about how it is that professional groups attach themselves to like jurisdictions of expert knowledge and action, it becomes fascinating. And so I was looking to the social world and actually my Instagram feed and found that a guy who had been tattooing me for a long time was embroiled in a debate around tattoo schools, that is the development of more like codified, standardized training models for tattoo artists here in the United States. Now given that I was reading Andrew Abbott and a bunch of other people, I was really thinking like, hey, wait, this seems fascinating first of all, but also a historical anomaly. How is it that when I go to get a haircut, the person cutting my hair has has encountered more standardized training than the person who's giving me the tattoo, and not because I was, uh, you know, trying to critique tattooing. I just approached it as a historically interesting anomaly, and so I did an article about that with the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and the process of doing that, interviewing a bunch of tattooers and and sort of diving into that world, convinced me that this would be a fascinating topic to explore further. And as I'll probably describe quite a bit later, what happened though is that I kept showing up at a tattoo shop and my soon-to-be mentor, a guy named Matt, who you'll read about in the book, really was kind of challenging my presence there and asking me good questions like, what are you doing here? And hey, you know, when you interview tattoo artists, you're going to get a very particular kind of perspective about what's going on in tattooing and what it means to them. But he was convinced that I wasn't gonna learn anything real about tattooing unless I was deep in it. And so I just kept showing up to his shop. I cleaned it every day, cleaned the toilet, I'd run errands, I'd hang out and otherwise try to get involved. He eventually asked me to to sort of do it for real to take on an apprenticeship because I had been there for months and um, and I said yes. So I was completely blown away and surprised by the opportunity to apprentice into tattooing. And it was a moment that changed my life. And um, I think a lot of people who set out to do projects will find this story to be familiar. You start with one question and you kind of get yourself deeper into the experience and you end up with other questions. And the book is really an outcome of a, a very authentic curiosity and puzzle, which was when I sat to do my first couple of tattoos. I found the experience terribly exciting, nerve wracking, almost explosively emotional. And I was confused and surprised by what could happen there when you sit to t- try and tattoo someone. And so I tried to trust that, you know, the thing that was most curious to me would be the thing that I could best describe, and that the best story I had in me would explain something that I was genuinely fascinated by. And it was a puzzle that I actually needed to solve because I had to do tattoos. So the question around occupations, the historical arc of professionalization lost its vibrancy because it wasn't answering the problem I had in front of me every day, which was what is going on in the moment of tattooing between the tattooer and their client. And so I set out to explain that and that became the book.
1: And the title was just fascinating, in fact, it's uh, something that drew me to you know open up the spine of it and actually start reading it and to invite you onto new books in sociology, uh, Blood and Lightning. Where did that come from? Okay. So I love that
2: reflection of yours because of course it's a deep hope of mine. Uh, the language itself, I would agree, is kind of vibrant. I think it's uh, it's elemental. You know, it's, it's really getting us into the body with blood to the lightning, which is a, a very elemental kind of experience. Uh, you'll see, well, at least I try in the book to use language that gets us into the spirit of this thing that I encountered in tattooing. Now the words themselves, blood and lightning come directly from my mentor, Matt, who in his nighttime mood would try his best to explain the kind of power. That was associated with tattooing people. And he would hold up his fist in the air as though he was holding an imaginary tattoo machine and say, Blood and lightning. And what he meant by that was actually what became kind of the central argument of the book, which was that tattooers, when they're at work, have experiences that you would probably never imagine from outside of that experience of doing the tattoos. And Those experiences are really difficult to describe, they're difficult to observe, and in Matt telling us, blood and lightning, it didn't communicate anything to me at the beginning. But once I started doing tattoos, realizing that there was this, not I wouldn't call it magic, but this kind of uh, vibrancy to the experience of dealing with people, their bodies, wielding the tattoo machine, of course, powered by electricity in this case, the lightning and committing with them to have an intimate experience with a permanent outcome that that was such a powerful experience and i try to use that language blood and lightning in the book to do a couple of things which is of course draw the reader into the kind of spirit of the moment of the scene but also to try and emphasize over and over again that thing i'm trying to explain the thing i think sociology can be used to explain pretty well, is actually something that's ephemeral. Uh, not that I mean it go, it does come and go, but it's something that's almost metaphysical. and So I reached limits in my ability to explain this thing, and I use blood and lightning as a stand-in to try and trust that the reader will eventually pick up the spirit behind the, the words themselves.
1: Oh, one of the things that I drew from is my religion and society class in Emil Durkheim with, uh, uh, you know, collective effervescence. And it was almost, a, you know, with more than magic that happened during that tattooing experience. It was an out-of-body experience that could not be explained through some process that any magical trick would be uh, made from. Yeah, and I, I love that you bring that up, and I hope you don't
2: mind me uh, diving in. I mean, <clears throat> I use a lot of Durkheim in the book. Uh, if you're a teacher and you're trying to teach students about, you know, social interactionism. We're talking Kaufman, but we have a lot of Durkheim going on here because it's very useful in explaining some of the things that occurred. For instance, the first tattoo I did, the sacred qualities of that ritual and the type of feeling that's conjured, especially in a group, in a tattoo shop, there in the moment. And I try to use collective effervescence to explain this spirit and this animating force, but also a kind of congealing force. Rather, the thing that held us together was a, a shared commitment to a process and a shared uh, having gone through something together that we all identified as being special, as being beyond the profane and everyday. And so Durkheim, I'm trying to use him because I think he can, or at least you know, his legacy of, of, of thought can help us explain, the types of things that happen in tattoo shops that you surely would never, I think I would never expect from the outside, as well as the effect that those things have on the people involved. If if society can be held together through these moments of collective experience and through these ritualistic processes associated with the sacred, then tattooing is very much in line with
1: that type of social experience. Yeah, I'm away. And in the moving towards organic, but some of these being uh less organic, right? So like some of the intimate experiences uh that both you and Matt had, the one that you had with Matt actually, with his uh, you know, his testicles popping out of his boxes early on and and saying, well, you know, what's so? what are you afraid of? Get back to tattooing because it was it was an out of body experience. Like that wasn't that wasn't the organ that it would be outside of the experience of tattooing. Um, the other thing that, the other one that really stood out to me was the experience that Matt had with his mother when he was tattooing her and how, how she said, keep going, you know, keep going. Don't worry about these tears. These tears are, uh, this pain that I'm experiencing here during this tattoo session was much less than I experienced when I had, had, gave you birth.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So there is this, uh, and, and you'll read it in the book, this kind of, uh, coalescence of what I call streams, uh. You could call it a lot of things, but I'm sure I'm foregrounding one of your questions, which is the metaphor I use to describe the tattooer's experience, which is that they sit at the intersection of people, bodies, and money. I only discovered that language upon writing and rewriting and writing and rewriting and talking this project death to myself and everyone I ever met. Because I had no sense of, of how to describe this. Thing that was happening to me and to the tattooers I interviewed. Um, and as you'll see in the book, it is very much a kind of memoir style of writing, uh, but it's embedded in a broader effort of qualitative research. But this idea that tattooers sit at the intersection of people and bodies and money uh, places them alongside other body laborers. You'll see me mentioning things about hairstylists or even sex workers. Uh, But the cauldron of possibility that bubbles up when you're the person laboring within that intersection every day. So you're dealing with the person, their life, their history, their stories, their ideas. You're dealing explicitly with their body, shaving the hair off their leg, encountering parts of the body that are typically not exposed to strangers. And you're doing all of this within the commercial context. So the question was, for me, how do people who labor within this intersection of things? How do they experience their life? How do they think, feel, and act at work? And so, when you encounter body parts at the tattoo shop, uh, part of what the shop itself helps produce is a kind of um, neutralization of of the the strong cultural significance behind the body um, and as a tattooer, one of the strangest things that I ever tried to do was figure out how to deal with bodies as though they were like objects of, of artistic production, uh, to try and yeah. So this language of the canvas comes up. Um, although I try to critique that language because, because it doesn't really capture the fact that when you're tattooing somebody, you don't get the benefits of the canvas. Because I, as a painter, look at a canvas and yeah, it might be a little intimidating, a big plain canvas, what are you going to do with it? Uh, but you know in your in your head that you can always throw that thing away, right? Uh, and so in tattooing, one of the things that's um, absolutely incredible and one of the reasons why I wrote the book in the first place is that when you're working with somebody's body, you're always working with somebody, the body itself, but the person. And so you cannot really separate the body from the person is part of the argument. And tattooers have uh, techniques to try and do this. Uh, I discussed this in a chapter about race and skin tone as well as gender and touching. You can rely on conventions of action. So I'm using a bunch of Becker here. Uh, Try to talk about how it is that those conventions are embodied. I'm using Bourdieu to do that. But all of that is just using sociological insight, using concepts, Mm -hmm. using theory, which are really backgrounded. I don't know if you felt this way. I tried to do my best to write an actual story (laughs) with actual characters, but you know, this this
1: Alongside, uh, flowing with the jargon alongside the experiences that you had, which makes for a good ethnographer. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um,
2: But yeah, it's all in the service of trying to explain something that is difficult to explain, which is what is it like to permanently change a body? Um, well, part of what that's like is that you're permanently changing a person and you're doing it for money. And the question of money is not only interesting to me, I use some economic sociology to think about pricing, to think about tipping, but the broader thing, and I was just interviewed by the uh, the Seattle Times, I live in Seattle. Uh, and one of the things that we got to discuss was in making art, there is this kind of a tension, an almost inherent tension between artistic production and economic valuation, like pricing the work you make, selling it. There is like this almost, almost in, in this difficult relationship between artistic production and economic production. But in tattooing, what's cool, one of the things I loved about it, one of the things that makes it really special is that it's inherently commercial. You know, you're, you're not going to tattoo somebody for free. Unless it's, you know, a deep friend or something like that. So the idea that it's all taking place, that the intersection of people and bodies is is framed by this commercial context helps us as fascinated people who are fascinated by the social world, helps us explain why the experiences are the way they are um, in the moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com.
1: Another thing that I found interesting, though, is that there is somewhat of a removal of the person from the exchange of money because the counter is on the front of the house, I guess we want to call it. And then they go to the back into the tattooing space where not all people have access to. So do you think that there's strategy in that separation of space? So,
2: yeah, there's uh, an amazing architectural story to be told of the tattoo shop, and I think it could extend itself to the hairstyling salon to the manicure spot, which is the, the, the regions of space that one encounters upon entering, upon being in the realm of service and leaving. And what happens in the tattoo shop is quite familiar to anyone, even if you've not been to a tattoo shop, which is there's a waiting area. You walk in and at that moment you are a client or a prospective client. You're someone who's a part of the public. You are kept intentionally from the spaces of tattoo production and from the, the work itself. And there is a kind of transition that occurs when moving from, let's say, the waiting area into the tattoo experience, which often happens in these little, almost cubicle-like structures called booths. Uh, and so when you consider the money aspect, back to your question, uh, it's it's important to think about how it is that a person transforms from being just a person in the world to someone's client. And part of what you see when you actually do tattoos, or as you'll read in the book, when you talk to enough tattooers is that they have these intentional forms of, if you will, impression management, these intentional ways of guiding their clients from the experience of moving from just being another person to being their client. Right. And there's a, a great deal of emotional labor that occurs. There's a great deal of um of intention. And what I found really interesting was that when you work in a tattoo shop, you notice that people, and this is really harking, this is Goffman 101, but people work in teams. So, you know, we as a shop would act as a shop in helping to facilitate that transition for our clients. And One of the things I'd like to bring up, which is pretty particular, I think, to tattooing is and makes it quite different from hairstyling is the fact that a lot of your clients are very nervous. Uh, Many of them don't know anything about the tattoo experience. If they're new to it, many of them feel intimidated upon walking into the building itself. And many of them are anticipating the pain that's about to occur and the big decision they're making. And so i think quite distinct from other forms of body labor we have a kind of ratcheting up of the stakes which requires a, a heightened level of intentionality and you're not going to find that everywhere i don't mean to to say that like oh tattoo shops hey you think that they're one way but they're they're different it's not as if every tattoo artist in in the country is going to tell you what i've told you uh you know the result of an ethnography is you dive deep into a scene and what i found among my scene was people being quite intentional in their relationship with others and acknowledging the fact that they were offering a service to them in exchange for payment, but also, and we could talk further, also understanding their place in that economic exchange, not as one that's a pure form of service, right? The customer isn't always right, but as a kind of partner in a collaborative artistic production um, where you as a partner have some, not only say in what goes on, but also a kind of stake in the experience itself that, yeah, the person's going to walk out with a tattoo, but you are going to try to go to sleep that night having done it. And so you're
1: both on the hook for making that experience a good one. even to the extent I remember in part of your your book where you're writing about, as a tattooer, um, asking the client to consider expanding the size of that tattoo, making it slightly larger, so that uh, the lines can be a bit more um, straight or um, so that you can produce a better tattoo for that person. So the expertise of the tattooer. What's so fun about this book, I think for
2: people who have nothing to do with tattoos, who don't have them, who don't think of themselves as people who are interested in the subject, what I find repeatedly is that those people, that they might be my best audience indeed, uh, because when they've read parts of it or when they talk with me about it, they find all of these moments of surprise that are really fun for them, where they're like, oh, I just see people with tattoos. But I never thought, for instance, that uh, from the tattoo artist's perspective, it's often the case that doing a bigger tattoo. Is easier and in some ways better than doing a small one. A lot of clients, especially if they're new to the tattoo experience, will request pieces that are small, smaller than you think maybe they should be. In part because the ink itself spreads as the body ages or as the ink ages within the body, because the body tries to break it down, but it can't, which is why it stays there. However, it spreads over time. And so Putting lines really close together, and making the image really small and detailed, over time will prove uh, the fact of the inevitability of the body to change, morph, and even decay. So, tattoo artists have uh, conventions of, of of practice that allow them to produce work that they think will not only be good when it's done, but be good ten years later. And part of that is about making sure that the lines and the spaces in between those lines make sense because again this isn't a canvas this isn't a piece of piece of paper or a digital touchpad it's a moving changing morphing living being. And so there's the question of hey, you know you're asking for this tattoo I really like the design. what you're asking for is really small and all of these lines are going to just jial together into a blob likely over time. I'm wondering if you want to, consider making it larger. But what is amazing about using sociology to explain this kind of moment is that sociology helps us make sense of it and helps us extend that moment into an arena of thought that that gives insight into the social world, which is, yeah, sure, that's a kind of standard observation. You could watch someone having that interaction and leave and just go get dinner and not think about it. But what is occurring there is a a deeply personal form of interaction, and and there's all kinds of stuff that can come up when a tattoo artist, let's say, makes makes a suggestion to change a design or to change where it's going to go on the body. It implicates both parties in a conversation, even if it's not there on the surface, in bodily autonomy, in workplace autonomy and back to the sociology of professions and expertise, uh, because as from the tattooer's perspective, and we'll talk about this, I, I think whenever I discuss what I ended up calling the ethic of refusal, you know, people bring you bad ideas all the time. Uh, people are full of bad ideas. Me too, it's fine, we're humans. So you go to the tattoo shop, you got this thing you want, the person behind the counter uh, is like, you know what, I think that's a bad idea. So what does that person have to do, get to do uh when they're given a bad idea? Do they follow through with the bad idea knowing that it's not a good idea in part because they need the money, because they do this as a, you know for for a living? Or do they do the extra work, sometimes very difficult work, of trying to transform that bad idea into a good one? And from like the cleanance perspective. Yeah, like the face so too. A kid came in, you know, this happened more than once, but in the book you'll find that I was having just a regular day and some young person came in and asked to get the word heartbreak above his eyebrow. And I was pretty sure he wasn't 18, but he told me he was, showed me his ID. And, uh, we had a really nice exchange. These moments can be really fun in a tattoo shop. And part of what I try to do in the writing is ensure that that fun comes through, but you know, I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give you that tattoo. And you can walk away from that, or rather leave that experience thinking, wow, Dustin told this kid he couldn't do something to his own body. Right. And if we really think about the standpoint of my position in the interlocking, interlocking uh, modes of oppression, you know, if I was telling a young woman that she couldn't get a tattoo, uh, you could read from that, like, hey, Dustin's telling a woman she can't do something with her own body. Now, from the, and that's like the position I would probably have taken from the tattooer. And now that I've experienced it, really what I always thought was starting to happen to me was like, hey, just because you asked me to do something doesn't mean I have to do it. Right. And the question of autonomy becomes kind of double edged, if you will. Uh, and so from the tattooer's perspective, and I know this because I experienced it, but also you know interviewed a ton of people, mostly queer people actually and, and women in the book, but you get this sense that you might do something because someone wants you to do it because it's their body and it's their choice and you end up, not all the time, certainly not all the time, but occasionally, fulfilling a request that you might not have fully believed in, like, you know, I don't think this person's thought through what it's going to be like to have that tattoo on their neck, given that they don't have a bunch of tattoos already. Or, you know, this design's a little wonky. Um, And the question is whether or not you just go with it or you intervene. And, and intervening has its costs, um, but it also has its rewards. I talked with uh, a woman who had been tattooing for 20 years, and she said that, for a long time. She just did whatever anyone asked. Like She was like, it's not my business what a person gets tattooed on them. I'm there to help them through that experience and give them the best job I can. And then later, 10 years later, she started regretting some of those choices. And she started upholding boundaries in a way that was new to her. And so I didn't tattoo that kid's face, not because I didn't believe he should be able to do something or not to his body, but simply because I didn't want to have to go to sleep thinking that I had tattooed his face. You know, it becomes about you in some ways. And it's a difficult place to be in and to navigate. It's a difficult thing to discuss publicly, right? It's a difficult thing, but that doesn't mean it's out of the reach of of our conversation. Right. And and it was part of what was amazing about tattooing for me that I hadn't realized from afar. And That I wrote the book to try
1: and explain the best I could. Well, it's a human to human relationship. It's something that doesn't exist with a human to uh, technology or machine relationship, period. It's not a a tattoo, is not something that you get from a vending machine. It's something that you get from a human that uh, while it's disembodied, it might be disembodied during the exchange or after it's there. However, the process of getting to that point is very humanly.
2: Yeah. And I'll say uh, the thing that, really excited me about the project was was the interaction, the moment with your client. And one of the things that inspired me to do better in my tattooing and to try and write was seeing people and meeting people who had great tattoos, uh, and I discussed this in the book, who didn't like them necessarily because they didn't have a great experience getting them. And this was really surprising to me. But it totally made sense, which was, I had a client come in, for instance, she had a great tattoo on her arm. It was from an artist that I recognized because I was so deep in the tattoo world that I kind of, I was totally obsessed with this, with everything about it. So I knew the artist because I knew their work. And I was like, that's one of the best tattoos I've ever seen. She's like, yeah, it's amazing. But uh, it took me a long time to like it because the person who did it was a jerk. And every time I looked at that tattoo, I remembered the jerk who did it. And so there's this lesson in that, which is the interaction, the moment that the tattoo occurs over the course of a few hours, usually if it's larger, a few sessions, uh, but that is really, really important that it impacts how a person is going to experience the thing itself. And it is really instructive for a number of reasons. First of all, I also became very interested in concepts of time and of the future. And there's a bunch of work on this in economic sociology that's fascinating. But of course I was I was attaching myself to this question of permanence, bodily permanence. What does sociology have to say about that? What what is what is going on? And all I did was start to think about tattoos as 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 occupying two different types of time, or rather two moments, Uh, the moment that the tattoo is done, the process with the person likely in a tattoo shop, and the series of moments afterward that likely span a person's entire lifetime. And so when you break permanence into two parts, what you start to see is that there are these dimensions that tattoo artists can have influence on and they know they're having influence on, which is if a person comes to you and you give them a great tattoo, but you're super grumpy for whatever reason, maybe you dropped off your kid at daycare and it was a disaster and you went to work. And For them, going to work is going to a tattoo shop, opening the gate outside, right? drinking your coffee and getting ready for your first tattoo. Yeah, you're super grumpy. You're complaining the whole time. You give the person a great tattoo and you say bye and you know what? <laughs> for the next for the next decades, that person has that tattoo and they might not think about it a lot. Who knows? But, you know, it's not the case that they look at that tattoo and remember your shining, smiling face and they remember the fact that you went out to lunch afterward because you like made a connection. The fact that maybe you invited them to like a, a musical show afterward or something, you know, like if you envelop someone in an experience that's really fun that's positive, in whatever way that whatever, however that makes sense to the person, that you can, in fact, uh, give someone not the best tattoo you ever did. and they will love it just as much, if not more, than the best tattoo you ever did while you were grumpy. And so, you know, there is this uh, way of thinking about the responsibility of the tattoo artist the permanence of the thing itself. And I think a lot of people who don't get tattoos and surely people who don't do them, most of them I would say, unless you're especially insightful, which I wasn't before I did all this, you don't really sort of get that and and for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but as a tattooer, one of the pressures that you have is giving people good experiences and um, not all tattooers are going to do that all the time, of course. but. That is something that surprised me about the endeavor, and I think it's something that latches on to a larger set of uh, questions about what I call the intersection of people,
1: bodies, and money. And then what was reoccurring throughout your whole book is this definition of the situation. I thought, wow, Dustin brought that idea up several times, over and over again, either as definition of the situation by the Thomas theorem, or in other forms of like Goffman and front stage, backstage. You know, from the social constructionist perspective. And I, and I think that this experience economy is 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 very full and vibrant and and I'm glad that you brought this uh, up in our conversation today not only from the the mood that the tattooer is in but also other things that you didn't go in detail as much about but but to, to some moving away or uh, tattooing away from carnivals and things like that the bucket um the the bucket and sponge method that used to be to a more cleanly and uh, um, more permanent environment of the tattoo shop. So thinking about even the smell or or what that person sees in the tattoo shop, that will have a a lifelong impression on that person.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why tattooing is such a good vehicle for sociology, and one of the reasons I wrote the book in the way that I did was to try and help younger students get excited about sociology, because I don't know about you, the last time I was teaching. The promise from C. Wright Mills, thinking it was an engaging and amazing piece of work. I had some students falling asleep and not reading it, and part of my mission here is to be like, hey, this thing is really relevant to you. Not only because most of the students will, let's say, have a tattoo and they know people, they know the scene, they know about them, they think it's cool, they think it's interesting. Using Goffman, thinking about the, de- the, the, the definition of the situation using these things, which are concepts and theories to describe what happens in the world, and to make sense of that, right? to make the familiar strange, if you will, which is one of my favorite ways of thinking about the great call of sociology. Applying all of that to tattooing is really exciting, and in part because the stakes are really high. Uh, The fact that it's permanent on the body ratchets up the stakes, and the fact that it's such an embodied thing, both to do as a practice, but also to receive, let's say as a client and to be in public. Uh, the body is central to the whole experience. And, and when we consider what it's like to become something, whether it's a tattooer or anything else, uh, the body becomes part of the equation because you have to learn how to use new tools. You have to learn how to do new processes, you have to learn how to wield the body in new ways, Um, but when you're implying or rather imposing that upon the body of someone else, you get this kind of relationship that I think is especially poignant for sociological analysis
1: on to be able to see the individual trouble of the tattoo that appears around the person. You know, it's almost like suicide, right? Thinking about very personal matter, something that individualistic, like that person walking in, thinking that he could get a tattoo on his face because it's his body and he gets to choose what he does with it. But then seeing it as a larger patterned set of exchanges that take place between tattooers all over the United States and the uh, clients who walk into those tattoo shops, seeing a much larger social problem or social phenomena at hand. Yeah, and I think the the question, there is a kind of levels of analysis
2: thing going on where you do have these individual moments between the tattoo tattooer and their client. They ladder up to something bigger, which is a kind of world of tattooing, tattoo world, or as I described, tattoo worlds. Now, in context of other conversations uh, and real political realities of bodily autonomy, tattooing can at first seem... Uh, far more kind of casual and uh, less important to me when I think about the battle over uh, the right to have an abortion, right? When I think about um, the realities of police violence among uh, against people of color, um, tattooing becomes a kind of pet project that seems kind of cool and interesting, but not impacting the world in the same way. However, I think you can use tattooing as an interesting case and as a kind of not, not always fun, but like fascin- fascinating world to get at these larger conversations, which I, like a lot of students were, I was very kind of inspired to write those books, right? And, and one of the things that I had to do in this project was to trust, as I mentioned earlier, that the story that was really interesting to me would be the story that I could tell the best and would be the story that I kind of should tell, if that makes sense. And so you have in the book a kind of history of of, of, of human classification. right? So I have a chapter about skin and skin tone and what it's like to talk about skin tone directly in the tattoo shop. Um, but housing that conversation between individuals in a broader history of, let's say, the development of scientific racism um, did for me something that I think it's doing for some readers, which is placing the tattoo moment um, in a broader context and asking from tattooing all sorts of questions and almost any question that you're interested in, which is, I think the, the whole people, bodies, money thing, this intersection I use throughout the book that I intend to use throughout my life in a variety of creative projects, because I'm probably not going to do another sociological book, we'll see. Um, what it's, its generative power, it's, its explanatory power is pretty profound in part because it's hard to find something that isn't occurring at the intersection of people, bodies, and money. And surely you don't want to stretch, let's say, a metaphor, an approach, or a framework, but it was the framework that helped me see what was going on, that helped me explain what I was experiencing, that helped me bring others beyond the position of the unknowing kind of client or observer, and and bring them into the bodies of the people who were doing tattoos. To the extent that I've had people say, "Oh yeah, now when I pass a tattoo shop that I never thought about before, I look at it and I kind of wonder what's going on inside," and that spirit of wonder, that curiosity, I think is is really an animating force for my life, and it's something that I hope to have others experience.
1: So, unfortunately, or Dustin, we're unfortunately just about uh, out of time um, for this conversation. Um, uh, what, uh, however, you know, one, main question is, yeah, you're working in the, in the field now, you're working with JP, Chase Morgan. And, uh, what I'm curious about is how this book has inspired the work that you do there. Is this something that you've even found yourself reflecting on and saying, how can I use this in my everyday uh, work life, um, even outside of academia?
2: So one of the things that, uh, I found very surprising was that having been a tattoo artist, uh, was really helpful in my attempt to get a job at J.P. Morgan Chase. And that is because when you think about what a tattoo artist experiences, and when you house that experience in a way of approaching the world that is sociological, you can leave that experience and develop that explanation and find yourself uh, with skills <laughs> that that are applicable in all kinds of places. So if you think about what happens in a tattoo shop, if you're the expert behind the counter, or someone comes in, they ask you for a face tattoo, and you have to figure out how to say no while, you know, having a good experience and maybe, and maybe, maybe what you're doing is trying to get that person to move that tattoo for whatever reason. Hey, let's put it on your wrist. Or, um, or maybe you don't want to do any of that at all and you give them a face tattoo. What I learned from sociology was a, a, a way of storytelling and a way of thinking that allowed me to approach J.P. Morgan Chase and to say, hey, I have something that's of value to you, which is a perspective on the world, which is a set of skills uh, around social research, and which is a kind of mode of storytelling that uh, was... Not obvious to me that a company would want that. Um, now, I jumped ship from academia for a variety of reasons. One of them is that my spouse is a, an arts leader. She's currently uh, an executive director of an arts organization here in Seattle. And I didn't want, I was faced with this question of, of moving kind of anywhere for the job. I was watching people get postdocs. I was watching people struggle and people who were just as successful, if not more than me, And it seemed to me like the writing was on the wall. So uh, I found a new world in doing ethnography in the corporate space, uh, and it's way more interesting and rewarding than I thought it would be. And it is a kind of home that, that tattooing has taught me to inhabit well, in part because you're dealing with a variety of people who come from a variety of backgrounds who have their own incentives of participation who have their own way of seeing and being in the world uh your ability to notice that to comprehend what's going on in the moment and to respond appropriately is of great value to companies now not just JP Morgan Chase we're talking any company and so yeah i was surprised to find that you know me being a tattooer uh was going to work now what you'll see is in the book, and I, I talk about this a little bit, which is about if you read economic sociology, um, you'll find uh, that that people who shape markets, especially economic markets, are are uh, just as cultural as as everyone else. This idea that we have a kind of rational actor out there who's manipulating markets through zeros and ones. Um, not that it doesn't exist. There's a there's a whole argument around the performativity of the economy, but uh, the thing that I do in the bank is very much not related to finance. It's more like I work in a technology company, so it's not even like I'm working with, um, you know, finance bros, if you will. Uh, so I have found a new home outside of the classroom. However, this book is very much geared toward a variety of audiences. one of those is the sociological classroom and the students I absolutely love and loved being with and at a at a profession that I was very attached to and very excited about. So what stepping away from all of that helped me do, though, and huge kudos to Stanford University Press for this, was trust that I was going to write the book that I wanted to write that I wasn't gonna pump out a bunch of articles to try and get tenure before writing the book, that I had become an author uh, writing his first book and <clears throat> writing the book that I really wanted to read and not caring at all if it was going to move any particular conversation or if it was gonna ladder up to any kind of you know, moment in the sociological discourse, but just trusting and following the thread of curiosity to produce the thing that I knew it could be without the pressure. And that was one of the most freeing things of my life, I'll tell you. And I worked on it evenings, I worked on it in the early morning, and doing so from outside of academia was such a good idea for me because I was very much swayed by a lot of very smart people. At, at first in, in, in what this project could be. So I, I huge huge kudos to the the team at Stanford because they were so helpful in allowing me to trust that. and I became kind of obsessed with memoir actually. That's the thing that helped me write. Um, I read all the sociology, of course, um, my PhD in the subject and used to teach it for nearly a decade. But when I started reading memoirs, when I started reading the conversation about memoir production, by those folks, that team, that world, um, I became inspired not only to write, but to read and to think in ways that sociology hadn't quite done for me. So you'll see in the appendix, I have an appendix called, what is it called? (laughs) The Ethics of Something or Other About Writing and Research. and you'll see that I'm trying to think about bridges between ethnography and memoir. I think these two modes of production are very different. I think they rely on different ways of conceiving of data, particular memory. However, I think the best sociology that I encountered was kind of rubbing itself up against memoir in a way, at the very least in its, in its dedication toward carnal description. Even if it was a quantitative study, if it got me in the head and in the room, in the heads of the people studied, in the room where they were sitting, in the smells involved, uh, I was, I was there, you know. And so, this is a response to
1: that. And and well, I, I, mean, you I know, know, even your participants said that. Um, uh, so that you were very one of the one of the um, strengths that you had as a tattooer, and so you were very good socially, and that you're able to develop relationships, which is something that I think that comes with ethnography that, that that maybe even better comes with the lot because it's more of an emotional approach, and and then being able to apply that also in the workforce and being able to develop social relationships with other people. Yeah,
2: and any artist will tell you it's one thing to make a thing. But you have to get it out into the world and that with a book requires conversations like the one we're having. It requires a production of kind of online presence through the social media accounts or what have you. You cannot just sit in a basement and make something and have someone else appreciate it necessarily. So it's all about relationships. And I was very early on into this project when someone told me, you know, tattooing is all about the people. And I, because I had been chasing down an idea around the production of style and different types of styles and genres and thinking about the history of cultural sociology and the study of genre and classification, very interested in classification. And someone, a very smart seasoned tattooer, was like, dude, it's all about the people. Like, you're, he didn't say this, but he said, you're missing the point. You're missing the thing that's actually special about what we do. You're not noticing the thing that I actually have to do every day because the making of a cool design is one part of a way bigger story. And that bigger story is the human story. And anywhere you look, if you look hard enough, even at nature, you'll
1: find a human story. That's a perfectly synced in this conversation. but uh, i hope that we get a chance to um connect again whether it be uh, at a conference or uh well maybe in your next book that you're not necessarily planning on writing right now but maybe in the future it will come about (laughs) so uh thank you thank you for being on the show yeah i really appreciate the opportunity this has been another episode of new books and sociology channel the new books network and uh this was with dustin kiskadan to discuss blood and lightning have a great day everyone